Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about negative definitions, how various parties play political games and end up not actually defining themselves in what they stand for, but instead of what they're not. We talk about the problems with this, how the American electorate tends to be using pattern matching instead of critical thinking, and what this means for the politics at large. Without further ado, let's get started. You might have noticed a shocking pattern in recent American political history. There's been an increasing shift toward not actually representing a given policy and a given ideology, but instead being solely united by a hatred of the opposition. This is documented in many statistics over time, including polarization, including party distance, and including various demographic factors and echo chambers that are being set up in cities and rural areas alike. We talked about one theory behind this, the coherence-decoherence theory, two episodes ago, in which ideological decoherence, people who are forced into various parties who don't necessarily believe the same ideology, causes parties to hunger for power and causes the necessity for a common enemy in lieu of ideology. As we talked about then, this makes coalition building fairly easy. You can unite a group of people who all share a common enemy, a common negative experience, or a collection of which can easily be negotiated between. However, this makes governing nearly impossible, since every actual proactive action would have serious ideological opposition from within the party. If you have people who follow a social conservative mindset, if you have people who follow an authoritarian mindset, as you do with the far left, in the same party as people who follow a lowercase l liberal mindset, or people who follow a moderate neoliberal mindset in the same party, then those people will all have differing priorities, and each different policy will actually conflict with one of these groups or another. Moreover, negativity bias makes it so that the easiest thing to do is not to pass any policies whatsoever, which, if you've looked at recent gridlock in the American political system, is what has been taking place. One example of this is the Trump stimulus negotiation failures, where there was a bipartisan effort to sabotage any progress that could have possibly been made by various quote-unquote poison pills such as Mitch McConnell's corporate liability shield or the Democratic Coalition's state and local bailouts. Similar expectations are held for the Biden administration, as, continuing with patterns from under Obama, the Republicans are likely to engage in the same obstructionary tactics that have developed as a result of these negative definitions. Moreover, this leads to extreme demonization, when the only thing uniting a coalition is the hatred of the opposition party, you can naturally see that fester, you can naturally see a greater incentive to play into this, to make more negative attack ads, and to go in more extreme directions of demonization. Once again, the data backs this up, as the hatred of the opposition party is at an all-time high. More than 37% of Americans think that the greatest threat is other Americans, and the rates of willingness to have a child marry someone from an opposing party is at an all-time high. This shows that not only has politics replaced religion in many people's lives, but it's also manifested itself in one of the most Puritan forms of it, repeating many of the early mistakes of early Protestant-Catholic conflict. 
Evidence of this includes incredibly high re-election rates, 94%, for Congress, while trust in them is actually at, once again, an all-time low. Moreover, this is extended past the government itself, but into institutional distrust, but to any demographic group that has polarized partisan alignments. This includes having extreme distrust in city administrations, local politics, includes extreme distrust in media and entertainment, which to some degree is warranted considering they have contributed themselves to this polarization, as well as even to scientific institutions, which do indeed tend to have an ideological bent in terms of its employees, but whose better end has avoided many of the possible missteps that could be occurred from ideological bias through scientific tools like the scientific method and through many of the mathematical tools that we talk about on this show. However, because of the structure of negative definitions, anything that goes against what a party establishment's status quo is tends to be demonized as something that belongs to the opposing party. Examples of this include attacking Tulsi Gabbard throughout the Democratic primary on her anti-war stance, something that has long traditionally been a part of the Democratic Party as something that would actually be conservative, simply because it was not part of the party's status quo. Similarly, arguments that tend to come from the moderate end of either party often get demonized as part of the opposing party, as quote-unquote a Republican in name only or a Democrat in name only. Similar attacks were also launched against a number of insurgent candidates, including Marco Rubio and Ron Paul on the Republican side, as well as against figures like Andrew Yang, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren in 2020. The consequences only get worse if we look at policy instead of people. Circling back to the example of Andrew Yang, his proposal of universal basic income was something that played incredibly strongly to both the fundamental value of liberty and the fundamental value of equality. Being a redistributionary method that doesn't require a high level of government trust and can be easily verified for success. However, because this idea wasn't something that necessarily was part of a democratic establishment, it was rapidly demonized as something that was oppositional to the party instead of something that was beneficial to that same historical ideology. Similar events are now playing out with Mitt Romney's proposal for a child tax credit. In fact, if we look at our model of voting perceptions from a few episodes ago, then something much more shocking actually applies. Typically, voters use transformer models instead of actual critical thinking in order to decide their political values. That is, they try to match various proposals and policies to a pattern that they've seen before, one that is in alignment with their own ideological beliefs. When you have this destruction of ideology, this decoherence, as well as at the same time having high degrees of polarization and the use of negative definitions, then this pattern matching process gets completely hijacked, and instead of trying to match something to their fundamental values, they just match anything that is not part of a party status quo as an opposition. Once again, this has rapid effects that manifest themselves in real life, including with attacks on mask wearing 
from the right wing side simply because they were something that the left wing proposed. Even while there was an early consensus, at least among some figures of the Republican Party. You see this manifest to some degree in other countries as well. Maybe unsurprisingly, the lockdown protests in Britain tended to often be aligned with left-wing organizations, as the ruling party that was actually enforcing the lockdowns was the Conservative Party, run by Boris Johnson. Similar events happened in the United States, where there's a very high premium on mental health and on the consequences of disconnection, a typical left-wing value, espoused by many right-wing figures of the Republican Party. Similarly, you had the left-wing assertion that people should quote-unquote hunker down and have the own personal resilience to get through it, a highly right-wing attribute, often being espoused by Democratic officials. This phenomena of polarization along literally any possible issue, issues which foreign countries tend to see higher degrees of unity on, leads to extreme damage in the public health space and in many areas where government should simply do its job that would normally not run into a debate whatsoever. Moreover, it skyrockets levels of distrust, which means additional costs for governments to actually have to manage and to investigate their own programs, and leads to a hiring problem for good administrators who would actually be honest to work in the government itself. Moreover, it leads to the prevalence of slippery slope arguments, in which policies are rejected simply because there is a paranoid idea that the same escalation will continue onwards and onwards without any ability for moderation. While this doesn't match in reality in most cases, to be fair, there is some justification with regards to the ideological development of some fringes in both parties. Of course, actually looking at the membership makeup, these slippery slope arguments don't tend to apply to entire parties themselves, only to the most extreme elements of a party or their media allies. Nonetheless, the prevalence of government distrust, driven by polarization and demonization of the enemy, makes it difficult to move in any given direction, even if, in a vacuum, or in a similar country like Canada or the United Kingdom, there would be an ability for both parties to move towards something that is actually productive for the entire population, even if it moved one policy closer to quote-unquote the left or the right. Not only that, it gives media greater power in order to spread disinformation and to mess with some definitions. One example is the misuse, which may have come about accidentally, of the word theory, between something like a conspiracy theory and a scientific theory. A conspiracy theory is often not driven by fact, it is not driven by actual data that can be collected or verified by people who independently go out and research. On the other hand, a scientific theory is quite the opposite. It needs to have data collected, often on repeated trials, often at a high degree of precision, and with standards like the mathematical standards that I talked about previously that allow for you to avoid noise, avoid trying to recognize a pattern out of thin air, and instead actually analyze information and isolate what variables are important. In this scenario, framing is everything. There is no inherent ideological alignment, at least not as a whole, in either given party, 
So whatever marketing tools, whatever framing, whatever conjugations media organizations actually use has the predominant impact of whether a policy is popular or not. One example of this, infamously, is the Obamacare versus Affordable Care Act framing. They are two names for the same bill that was passed. However, Republicans tend to be much more in favor of the Affordable Care Act as it doesn't bear the name of a political opponent. Similarly, Democrats are much more in favor of the Jordan-Israel peace agreement instead of the Trump-Middle East deal, which, once again, are referencing the exact same thing. This leads to an increase in the power of media control, and therefore an incentive for parties to further grab various media sources to exert their influence and to actively attack journalists, which we've seen happen to a high degree in the Republican Party during the Trump administration, and to actually an even higher degree in the incoming Biden administration. There seems to be an escalation over time here, regardless of which party is actually in power. Moreover, if we combine these two results, the first being that the transformer algorithms that people are using, the pattern matching that people are using is based on negativity and based on the party status quo instead of ideology and morals, and two, that the media power is able to frame things in any way that matches towards one party or the other, then you create a world where the partisan bases of both parties, which often are not actually voting based on fundamental verifiable issues like economics, not by the actual content of information or bills, but instead by the media control and framing of various stories. Moreover, this system of incentives is actually self-perpetuating, as once this phenomenon is established, it has an incentive to further stop the rise of ideological candidates, such as, for example, Bernie Sanders or Ron Paul. The danger of individual assertion, of the assertion of those fundamental moral values once again, which would disrupt the ability for corruption and for various elements of the media political sphere to maintain this influence over voters' perceptions. They seek to artificially extend this period of decoherence. Instead of allowing a figure to recohere the parties along moral values, they can instead control various framings, they can attack many of those candidates using the tools we mentioned, and further the polarization along reality lines. This is also deeply connected to the phenomena of association games, in which any person who interacts with someone who is deemed as the opposition, someone who might have greater crossover value, is deemed as an enemy, instead of someone who is trying to build upon the values of a party or the opposition, of one party or the other. For example, Mitt Romney is often attacked for siding against what he sees as corruption or misconduct, and for also supporting some more moderate compromises with regards to COVID stimulus. Similarly, during the primaries, Bernie Sanders was attacked for even appearing on Fox News to try to make an appeal to those supposedly conservative voters to go join the Democratic Party and vote for Bernie Sanders, vote for things like Medicare for All, that would be fundamentally left-wing values. However, because of ideological decoherence 
within the parties themselves, there is a perception that even going on oppositional networks, even to make staunchly left-wing ideological points, is seen as a right-wing effort. Of course, if this makes no sense to you logically, that's because politics is not rational. This simply extends many of the psychological phenomena that we talked about when we were covering conspiracy theories, including confirmation bias and narrative bias, as well as to other economic pressures, such as the pressure for cable networks to increase ratings, the subscriber model of various print media that encourages marketing to a polarized base, as well as various political incentives and corruption incentives. So, what can we actually do to help ourselves get out of this mess? One important tool to revisit is something I talked about very early in the Metapolitics series, that is, the arbitrary principle. That is, that the arbitrary is often a hiding place for corruption, that between uses of arbitrary factors and attacks, and unnecessary complexity, is an effort to serve corporatist interests. Once again, you can see this happening on the left with regards to various demographic issues, and you can see this on the right with the abuse of narratives and conspiracy theories instead of actually using the most simple explanations. With this heuristic in mind, with the heuristic that we want to remove many of these hiding places, there are many solutions to actually tackle this. Of course, none of them are perfect, but in my opinion, they will result in a better world than the status quo. One is an internal tax on negativity. Of course, this wouldn't actually be a tax by the government, but instead something that, that everyone does by choice, to deprioritize negative coverage in order to make up for many of the psychological biases that create delusions in the first place. This is a counterweight that seeks to remove some of the negativity bias from media and from their financial incentives. Another is to focus on trust when voting for government, to notice that there is spending and earning of institutional trust with every action and with every campaign promise. For example, if Biden says we will deliver $2,000 checks immediately, comes into office, and then delivers $2,000 checks immediately, that is the earning of institutional trust. A promise was made and a promise was kept. However, if he makes that promise and actually does not carry out on that promise, then institutional trust is spent, and there's a loss in further credibility for the Democratic Party, but not only for that, but to many voters for politics in general. If such a simple task could not even be delivered, one that is largely popular with 80% of the country, then the bar is lowered even further. This has significant consequences, as we talked about before, on the actual policies a government can implement, and on the personnel that they would actually be able to recruit in order to work on the policies themselves. So, a higher priority to candidates who focus on this aspect of institutional trust, those who look to restore faith in the government by doing simple, verifiable tasks that are beneficial and popular, can receive a higher salience. And, as always, one step that you could do is to share information among your friends, whether it be this podcast, 
whether it be information you've come up with yourself or other sources that you think offers strong evidence and analysis that can be verifiable, provable, or based on hard data. As we talked about before, the exponential power of network effects makes it so that this activity is one of the most powerful that you could possibly do, and something that is on the magnitude of being able to counteract many of these self-perpetuating corrupt forces that is able to counteract many of these self-perpetuating phenomena that we see right now. So if you do that, thank you. And thank you for helping solve the problem.